answered the Lord, I know you can do anything. No plan of yours can be opposed successfully. You said, who is this darkening counsel without knowledge? I have indeed spoken about things I didn't understand, wonders beyond my comprehension. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will inform me. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I relent and find comfort on dust and ashes. Then the Lord changed Job's fortune when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord doubled all Job's earlier possessions. All his brothers, sisters, and acquaintances came to him and ate food with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him concerning all the disaster the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a cassetta and a gold ring. Then the Lord blessed Job's latter days more than his former ones. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named one Jemima, a second Keziah, and the third Curran Hapak. No women in all the land were as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their fathers gave and their father gave an inheritance to them along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw four generations of his children. Then Job died old and satisfied. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Second Timothy, found in Second Timothy, starting with the chapter 2, verse 15. Verse 15. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will sp- spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Please be seated. The reading of God's word for the people of God. How many of you have... uh, scripted for your children when they were at home or maybe they're still at home when they hop out of your car you depart from them somewhere you have a script that you say to them and it sounds almost like uh, gibberish to some but to the your children or your grandchildren or whoever that may be it is something of substance and they know exactly what it means so when my kids I would drop them off at school uh, I would say have fun have fun slaying, have fun uh, attacking the castle. It's kind of this whole idea of slaying dragons in the day, right? This whole idea, when we get into this, this, this thought in 2 Timothy, this is kind of what is setting place, and we'll get there in a moment, but we have these sayings that we say to people, like, hey, uh, do what Jesus would do, right? Or, you know, Jesus is always watching. Some of these are used as uh, slight threats to our kids, right? 
or, you know, all of these sayings we have. Well, in the past, past few weeks, we have been attempting to gain greater depth of understanding of Scripture formation and its authority for us as followers of Jesus in this series. That's what we're attempting to do, trying to, trying to plunge the depths even further than we've ever been before and trying to do that. We started by engaging the heart and mind through the word picture of dwelling within Scripture and leveraged the practice uh, to us that's uh, called Lectio Divina or really uh, in English divine reading. This wonderful way of relationally dwelling in Scripture allows us to slowly read and prayerfully walk through it as it walks through us by the Holy Spirit. It illumines and it speaks to us when we do. That's our desire. That's what we do when we we get into that practice, right? Last week, uh, the Jewish educational system and Jesus' life became the backdrop of engaging the practice of memorizing scripture. Jesus and his Jewish culture would have had, as we talked about, the Torah memorized. This deep dive into repetition allows for the watering of our hearts. Remember the first week we talked about this idea of a tree planted by streams of water where their leaves never wither. This deep dive allows our hearts and our minds and our souls to to really drink deeply Scripture's great truths and deep riches. As we lean in to live out the practice as a people who study Scripture today and to be deeply formed by it, Paul's words to Timothy are are to us today. As I said, they almost seem, if you were to read this, uh, even First and Second Timothy, you would kind of go, wait a second, Paul's just kind of writing uh, just one-offs, you know, these one-sentence liners that kind of go, hey, you know, Timothy, remember. And he's doing that because he, he really is, he's trying to kind of remind Timothy of what he already knows to be true and trying to set this deep in him. But ultimately, in the passage, in the section we pulled out of a greater section, he says he wants him to explain the word of truth correctly. He says, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval, Scripture says. Be, good, be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explained, explains the word of truth. Avoid... Worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. I think it's that slide, Tommy. The next one over. This kind of talk spreads like, another version, cancer, as in the case of Hymeus and Philetus. They have left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. In this way, they have turned some people away from the faith. As we kind of leaned in, this is almost like mom and dad kind of sending him out. Like, well, wait a second, make sure this happens because this has already happened. You don't want this to happen to you. You don't want to, you don't want to bankrupt your faith on untruth. What is it about handling the word of truth or scripture that Paul has to need to commend this to Timothy? Uh, maybe even to us today, Right? who walk away from Jesus when we don't understand it correctly. We would never like to think that, but that's a possibility when we read Scripture under our own guise. 
If we correctly explain scripture, we need to study scripture and show ourselves approved, the scripture says, and in some versions it, it states it very clearly. It says, ultimately, Timothy is told to work hard for God's approval and correctly explain, explain the word of truth. Now, we, in the Western world, we struggle with scripture itself, I think, even inside the church. Can I dive into this? Because we may say, oh, I, I love scripture. I love how it speaks to me. I love how it, how it tells me the truth. Yeah, but do we, ha- do we understand its authority and its claim, not only uh, uh, its claim, but it's working its way out and through us in other places? And because of that, we need to understand not only how to correctly divide it, but understand the authority of it. In the Free Methodist Church, we have a statement about Scripture. It goes like this. The Bible is God's written word, uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit. It bears unerring witness to Jesus Christ. The living word, as attested by the early church and subsequent councils, it is, trust, it is the trustworthy record of God's re- revelation. Sub, uh, completely truthful in all it affirms, it has been faithfully preserved and proves itself true in human experience. It goes on to say the Bible has authority over all human life. It teaches the truth about God, his creation, his people, his one and only son, and the destiny of humankind. It also teaches the way of salvation and the life of faith. Whatever is not found in the Bible nor can be proved by it is not to be required as an article of belief as necessary to salvation. Uh, Did you catch it? Did you read it? It's this, authority over all human life. See, that's really, when we think about Paul commending to Timothy to correctly explain Scripture, we have to contend with this truth that is written into that, in which our book of discipline in the Free Methodist Church, which I believe has gotten it right, uh, was not the first to put a flag here at all, not by any stretch of the imagination. But it's one that we have to wrestle with as Westerners and definitely as Americans that does it have authority over all human life? Does it actually declare the truth that needs to be lived rightly and rightly so? As wisdom literature says, there's nothing new under sun. And so this statement, even within our denomination's book of discipline, is truth, but it's not our truth by any stretch of the imagination. It is just simply true. It's authority all over all human life. As we learned last week, Judaism is built into the built into the living Scripture and the authority of it. I mean, that is the case. Not always, uh, not it has not always been the right way. In fact, Judaism kind of uh, had problems with it. Jesus contended with the Pharisees and Sadducees and often yet, but they took the Torah and believed that it was an authority that they had to live out and live within. And not only they, but Jesus himself. He not only lived it, but he did it all the way to death. All the way to death. He embodied scripture. It came out of him. He fulfilled it as Matthew says to us. It was Jesus. 
When, when Jesus was in the wilderness with Satan and they were both wielding scripture, we find that Jesus' relationship with it was a deep place of dwelling where the Satan's was a, a use of it to kind of combat and to entice one out, almost like Genesis chapter 3. Like, oh, come on, is it true? But Jesus' deep dwelling within it, deep understanding, allowing it to permeate every cell of his being, allowed it to come out as truth, as something that is an authority through and in his life. And thus, we must live it in the same way. Jesus had no bumper sticker religion. We may kind of laugh like that. He didn't use it as a sword drill, weaponizing scripture against the discourse of Satan himself. It wasn't about that. It was about living truth. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, just the idea of Jesus just exuding the truth of Scripture that it just flowed through him. Not as a weapon against Satan per se, but really just the truth of which he lived in. That's quite a distance than the way we often live our faiths. Right? We live our faith oftentimes as this kind of like us against them. And Jesus didn't live in that way. He just lived it, this is truth. This is who I am. This is what it is. This is the reality of life as I declare it. That may be relatively new to many of us. Because we've been taught to weaponize scripture. Or even to read it as a way of defense against the Satan and the evil of the world, our flesh, the world, and others. I want to remind you of a few weeks ago, Andrew Wilson's quote was apropos, it's spot on. He said this, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and have decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Why do, I, why do I lean into this? Because as followers of Jesus, we need to have a growing relational dwelling in Scripture. Not as a weapon to be used to kind of stay on the path, but a, a, a place to live and exist and exude the love of Jesus. There's quite a difference, folks. One is just functionally trying to live as Jesus would want us to live. The other one is really living as Jesus declared us to live. As intentional followers of Jesus, we believe Scripture because we have an experienced presence with Jesus himself. Just as Andrew Wilson said about his truth. My no doubt about it experience was in 85 after searching the scriptures for three or four months prior to experiencing Jesus, I was a place in a space where the reality of Jesus and his kingdom was so real. So real as even the seats that you're sitting on. I couldn't deny it. And that's what Andrew Wilson's saying. Look, I had an experience with Jesus. And so with Wilson, I can say with truth that the scriptures are true because I've experienced Jesus and I want to live them out. While my trust edge is continually growing in regards to Scripture, it's not perfect, none of us are, none of us will be, but we have to grow into the reality that what Scripture has declared is true. It's not, an, it's not just, well, maybe. 
It is. And I think one of the reasons we struggle sometimes in our faith is just the idea of authority in general. It's hard for us as Americans and Westerners to live under, uh, under uh, authority without a fair amount of murmuring amongst us, whether it's to God or to others. It's just the way we live. We have been enculturated with a level of challenge. I mean, really, we are born into a, a westernized, Americanized thought that we just murmur against authority, period. And so when it even comes to God, we tend to kind of have this, this kind of low rattle. We just kind of want, oh, really, God? Is it really that true? Is this really the reality that you're calling us into? And it rises to the surface. We're so individualist at the core. We have allergies when it comes to authority. I hope I'm driving this deep because it is deep within us at places we don't even know or understand. Right? I mean, here's some, here's some just current ways that it's shown to be true. These are sayings and signs that just kind of echo. They come from a, uh, a place and a space that maybe you don't even know where they come from, but you be, be you, do you, for you, right? It's this independence. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Let me be me. I'm, hear me roar, all that kind of stuff, right? Be true to who you are and like resist. I don't know. Maybe you've seen those bumper stickers, but it comes from this core of anti-authority, Nobody's going to tell me. And so even as Americans, even maybe as followers of Jesus, when we come to Scripture, we're like, prove it. Tell me it's true. Prove it to me. Give me a sign. We become like Gideon in some ways. Like, hey, you know, if it's really true, God, show me. He's like, well, I don't have to show you anything. <laughs> in some ways, these, these sayings, can almost seem like self-loving, like almost like, wait a second, Jesus said, love, love your neighbor as you love yourself, and I, I just have to love myself. I have to be me. I have to do what I think is right. But see, that's where it lies in. I, I have to do what I think is right for me. When Scripture says there's a total other way of thinking and moving and living in, and the Bible is the grandest challenge to that, Submission to Jesus obviously is, but the Bible becomes this grand challenge to us on a continual basis of like, are you going to, are you going to surrender? Are you going to submit? Are you going to give yourself to what Jesus says is real? In fact, is a reality. So what does biblical authority mean for us? What form does it take? When somebody says uh, they're in, uh, that they're in authority, we tend to get this idea of the org chart. We have this idea of a, a structural framework that it fits in, right? There's somebody at the top and somebody at the bottom, and there's always, there's always this place and space where, uh, you know, it's a, it's a position or a seat in the organization, right? Whether it's a police or the boss, or some other place or space that there's a higher, there's an org chart, we, uh, we realize that there, there's not true love and freedom that's found in those spaces, right? There really isn't. When you, when, you, when, you, when you get down to the core of it in structural hierarchy or structural authority, there's not really the love and, 
freedom to be able to, to be who we have called to be in God. It's not that it's anti-biblical, but it's not really where we're called to live into, that kind of authority. We're called into a spiritual authority. And it's, it's what Jesus demonstrated to us. Uh, let me just define spiritual authority for you. It's in the terms of the way the scripture demonstrates it to us. It's an access point to reality. As they really are. So, so spiritual authority is not located in a position, but it's located in a person. It's located in the way they, they live out their morality. They live out their existence. It's located in that, in them. Let me explain. During the Enlightenment, as I understand it, theology and morality were moved from the no- domain of knowledge to the realm of belief. This may not mean something to you, but it means everything to what we're talking about. And when we start to think about morality and we think about theology as belief, we tend to think as Americans and Westerners, we kind of go, well, that's just your opinion. That's just how you think and you feel. But up until the Enlightenment, theology and uh, morality were caught into the same space as science and technology and the advancements of those therein. And we see that as it's been moved out, this idea of that theology and morality is feeling tends to lead to a crumbling because it all depends on what you think and how you feel and what you assume is right. right? Science and tech cannot answer the deeper meanings of life. Like, what is the meaning of life? What is evil? Who is a good person? And how do we become a good person? I wouldn't go to a coder and ask them how, do I, how I can become a better person. It's just not the place to go. Nor would I go to an accountant. They can tell me how my finances are going, but they can't tell me how to become a better person in those, in those realms, in those domains of disciplines. But theology and morality can and do. They answer those deeper questions that are being answered in our culture and in our world in other zones and should not be answered in those zones. Why drive at this? Because central to the biblical writers, the whole of scripture, knowledge, writers believe that, that there is true knowledge about what is right and true. They believe that you could know this without a shadow of a doubt. They wrote in this way. Whether the wisdom comes from, from if it's located in God, you know, we have the, the writers that are often called the um, sections of scripture that are called the, uh, uh, I'm losing the word right now, and I, uh, wisdom literature, there it is, I found it on the page. The wisdom literature, right? So th- these writers thought that you could know right from wrong. In fact, they, they call it hukmah or wisdom. They knew that you could know it, and they wrote as if it were true. And as we read through sections of scripture, we realize that we often wrestle with what they would say is a reality. And they say it's real and it's not, it's not flexible. Wisdom is the biblical framework. And it's the way we live in reality. It's not just street words as we use Proverbs to get by. I mean, they become great bumper stickers at times. 
But the whole of it is this idea that there's wisdom to be gained, and it's true, and it's, it's universal. Just like there are, are laws in science, like gravity, you drop something, or you throw something up, something's going to come down. Or E equals MC squared, the laws of thermodynamics. We know that they're, they're true. The wisdom writers wrote in this way that these are true. They're not the only ones. If you have your Bibles, you can, all, you can turn to where we've been playing and staying in Matthew, if you will. Right? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Does he say, does he, it's just a statement of truth. It's not a statement of contention. It's a biblical truth. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? It is more blessed to give than to receive. These are statements of fact. They're statements of reality. The last shall be first. I mean, these are facts. And so when we think about biblical authority and we think about then what comes out of Jesus is spiritual authority. When we come to studying scripture, we, we come in this zone of really trying to digest an, a reality that is not in our world. It's not in play. Jesus, think about all the parables or go back and read them. There are no commands in the parables. There's stories, stories that contain truths, truths that are sometimes very difficult to wrap your head around, and that's on purpose. But they're stories of truths. Jesus saw himself and Scripture as an entrance point to the reality of the kingdom. It's not something to be contended with. He's saying, look, you live by this. This is your entry in. I am your entry in. I died on the cross, but then scripture becomes this authority piece that comes out of him, and he lives within the zone of it. As we said earlier, Jesus bore this truth in his body all the way. We get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Some of us know this passage. It's Matthew 7, 20, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And he's, he's, he's had this discourse with, of what the kingdom is like. And the people who listened to him as he spoke these, it says this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. There's, there's, the, there's the comparison. He had no structural form about him at all. We know that. That's what appeals to most people, most of us about Jesus. He had no hierarchy. He, he had no ability to command or demand anything, and yet he spoke with authority, and people heard him, and they followed him, and this is what he invites us into. He didn't have a military or religious authority. I mean, he, he was in contention with the Sadducees and the Pharisees of his day. He just simply spoke spiritual authority, living out and living and dwelling within Scripture. The way of Jesus was not structural. It's not his approach. It was not his approach with people. I mean, think of how many people that 
he presented the kingdom to, and we don't even know how many walked away, but he presented the kingdom to, and he didn't coerce them. He said, it's your choice. It's your choice. That's, where, that's, that's the vast difference when we talk about biblical authority and how it sees itself through a person and the way they live. They, they had the ability to take or leave what he said and where he was inviting them to go. I mean, he even gave his disciples an opportunity to opt out. Think about that. He didn't coerce them. He said, so what about you guys? To the answer that most of us have found ourselves in is, would be the same. Where else would we go? Right? But he always leaves it up to our choice. That's the crazy thing about Scripture. It's about and seeing how he lived it out and this, this force that comes through it. But it's not a force to coerce. It's a force to invite. It's a crazy thing. But where does this biblical authority come from? Where, where does it reside? How do we get to the point when we study Scripture, if we're going to study it in a way, in a mind that, that is able to allow us to be transformed, where does it come from? It comes from the same place that I think Jesus' uh, belief in and living out Scripture came from. That he realized and know, knew that all authority is rooted in God who is real. He is reality. Uh, He's the creator and we're the created. And he knew that. But that's what we know too because because God is a self-giving and self-loving entity. He has chosen to invest himself as always and always from the beginning of time in humans. Right? Right? And so we often call, you know, the writers of Scripture, he invested himself in them, and they are the means and the medium of which we are, have access to the kingdom as, as through his, these agents of his grace and goodness. And just as with Jesus, when we come to this understanding and living under the authority of Scripture, we are living under the authority of God. In listening to and trusting in and obeying, we worship God with our whole beings. And so when we spend our days, when we spend our time, when we give ourselves to dwelling in Scripture by study, we are allowing ourselves to be formed deeply by the one who has the authority over us. When we do this, we are counter to the rest of the world. We look different. We act differently. The reality that we live in is defined by God, and this is the contention we have with studying Scripture. Is like, am I going to allow myself to do this? James says to us, right? He says, if you, you know, if you you read what you know to do, you look at it and then you forget it. You're man. You're not any not any better than those around you. We have an opportunity as we allow ourselves to be formed by Scripture to be defined by God himself. We choose not to. That's our choice. But as the New Testament has said to us and says to us, we, we reap what we sow. And God's okay with that. That's an incredible storyline, right? 
that he's okay with whatever rules we might, we, we, whatever way we might want to walk, but he's okay with that. But that's, that's biblical authority. That's seen itself out of, in scriptural authority. So when we set ourselves, our sights into studying scripture, we have to wrestle through these places and spaces where, well, we might not be in God's reality yet. The question may come as we understand the scripture as more of a story than it is a bunch of rules and commands because it is not a bunch of rules and commands. As we said earlier, Jesus doesn't command it too much. He gives you an access point, an entrance point, but he involves a lot of story into it. And that's where study comes into play. Because story is not well-defined often. And it's that way on purpose. We involve ourselves in the story of Scripture, in the study of Scripture, if you will, in order to work out what it's to mean for us in this place, in this space. That's why story is so important. In fact, in Paul, Paul says in several places in the New Testament that the followers of Jesus have been living in several different locations, they've been living on milk way too long, and they need to move on. They need to, they need to understand what God is asking them to do. They need to involve themselves in that and do the hard work as what Timothy was commended to by Paul to develop their faith and develop their understanding of what it means to live in wisdom for the day. Galatians is one of those great letters that Paul wrote that we could find ourselves in to understand this a little bit more deeply. We need to understand Scripture better. So if we're going to study Scripture, here's a a few guides that will help us. Uh, One, we we need to understand the the author's intent. Every, Every manuscript that's found in your Bible has an author's intent, and we can know that. That's when we chase it back to its original context. There are also those places when we study that often make us put our Bibles to the side and go, I don't get this, where there's a statement made early on, a command or an admonition that is not followed through later. That's, that's the way story is. We growth over a period of time. And so when we're younger in our faith, younger in our ways, if you will, in the story of God, there are certain things that have to be followed through, where at a later point they aren't. And those are things we have to wrestle through too as we study scripture. I mean, let me give you an example. How many of you would be greatly encouraged if our connection team greeted everyone literally with a holy kiss when you walked through the door? Yeah. Well, some of you would. That, I mean, that's just a simple place where you kind of go, whoa, wait a second. I, I got to do a little bit of work here because what does it mean in our day and age? What's it mean inside of, yeah, let's, let's just put it right. What's it mean inside of a pandemic where, you know, we have a lot of different measures of caution, even outside of a pandemic. I remember when I was in, at Spring Harbor College, this one Dude, I was a freshman, came up behind me, and he literally picked me off of the ground and kissed me on the cheek, on the cheek. But I was like, whoa, you know, we didn't do that in our church. 
It's in those funny places, but also some of the more complex places that we need to wrestle through and say, oh, what does this mean for us today? Because if, if we're living on the New Testament side of Scripture, then that Scripture needs to be put into play and practice. How do we do that? So Scripture is not only to be read for devotional, devotional aspects of inspiration, It is also to be read and to be dwelt in so that we understand the fullest breadth of what God is asking us to do. Richard Foster says this, study is a specific kind of experience in which through careful attention to reality, the mind is enabled to move in a certain direction. That's true. Remember last week we talked about Romans 12 where our minds need to be engaged, they need to be transformed. But when our minds are transformed, if you read the rest of chapter 12, you'll understand that the body follows suit. There's this, there's this wholeness, this embodiment of what we need to do. And we need to engage our minds in the study of Scripture more than we engage our minds in the study of our culture, maybe. They go hand in hand, and I understand that. But we know more about what's happening on social media than we know what's happening in the book of John. This is true. The study of Scripture allows us to grow our embodiment of living Jesus' love with spiritual authority. It allows us to grow our embodiment of living Jesus' love with spiritual authority. It allows us to live it out. It's not just with our minds but with our whole heart, mind, and soul. It is the, as Paul said, the hard work to Timothy. It is the hard work that sometimes we put, oh, I'll just put that off. So if study is so important, how do I get myself started in Scripture study? Well, uh, just a couple of suggestions. One, gather with a small group that is studying Scripture specifically. So we do have one group that's meeting and they would love to have you drop in and start a study with them. They're doing first, second, and third John and their studies are at 7 p.m. right here in the lobby. Tim and Jeff would love to have you stop in and be a part of that conversation piece if you've never spent time studying scripture and looking at it. I would highly suggest that you do that. If you want to do it on your own, I would just say choose a manuscript from the library of Scripture and start. Choose a manuscript. What I mean by a manuscript, if we really believe that this is not, this is, this is a really a library, a compendium of manuscripts that writers have put together, and we call it the Bible, we often call it the book, but it's really a manus, manuscript, choose one. My suggestion would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, one of the Gospels. Study Jesus. Spend time in it. I would go so far to say, before you even just start reading one chapter at a time, read the whole thing at least seven times. Now, why do I say seven? That's ah, a good number, biblical number. Uh, two, uh, in seminary, that was one of the admonitions to us as uh, when we did English Bible. Uh, so it's a way to study the scriptures. You just read it through. You get it coursing through your veins. So when you see one thing, you can see another thing. Some of us are familiar with the Bible Project and Dr. Tim Mackey. Uh, if you're not, I would suggest that you uh, look him up uh, in the Bible Project. But 
he often talks about hyperlinks or they can be used as allusions to scripture. Jesus uses this all the time. When you read through a manuscript that many times, you're going to start to see hyperlinks within the book itself, within the manuscripts itself, which then only illumines what Jesus is attempting to try to do or what the Holy Spirit's illumining to you, if you will. I would suggest that. The other thing I would suggest is that you get a good study Bible. You don't need much else, to be really honest. I think Scripture is faithful to itself, but a good study Bible. And I would suggest uh, my favorite these days is the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. Um, Often what we're looking for is a little more context to uh, the manuscripts that we're reading about. We want to know what was happening during those times. Not just what the words mean, those are important, and there will be uh, cross-references in those study Bibles to to trace words out, but also what is happening sociologically in the background. There are a couple of commentaries and people who I highly invest in because they give the socio-rhetorical commentary on what is happening because it illumines why things are said the way they are. And so I would highly recommend that. This is really practical stuff, but hey, let's just, let's just summarize before we get to the last point I want to make. Is that Timothy was commended by Paul to correctly, correctly understand Scripture and to give it away. But we as followers of Jesus, we as followers of Jesus, if we have not wrestled this down, we have to wrestle down the idea that that the Bible has authority over our lives. Not authority in terms of the structure. You'll see it in there, and yes, it's found. Structural authority is found in there. But, but Jesus wants us living out of this place of spiritual authority. And the only way that you can have spiritual authority, friends, is if you find yourself <laughs> digesting Scripture and allowing the Spirit to work it through. And some of that means study. It's not just a devotional a day. It means spending time every week going, hey, I'm I'm gonna walk through this book. It's gonna take me three years, but I'm gonna walk through this book and I'm gonna understand it, or whatever it may be for you. Because we want to live out the reality of the kingdom of God. And this is one of the practices of which followers of Jesus do. Now, for those of us who have been raised in the church who believe that Bible study is an end into itself, I hope I've dismissed that on you. The study of Scripture is our opportunity to determine the will of God, gain the wisdom to live in the world and, and with the reality of Jesus' kingdom. We live here now, but we have to live with the reality of the kingdom, which is not easy. So study, studying the scripture and knowing it is one aspect, but really to, to allow it to live its way through us is what we're asking for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you. I thank you for scripture. I, I, I am just uh, amazed at its, its, its truth. But Father, even as I'm amazed at this truth and even as I live it out and just, it just becomes an everyday reality for me in some ways, there are so many areas of my life that I, Father, need to grow in and need to really live out. Father, that's not only my experience, but that's all of our experience because we live in this world that we're divided. We, we live in this place where we, 
we want to live under your lordship, live into your righteousness, and live out holiness. But Father, at times, our minds, our whole beings are divided. Our authority, our authority that we live under is you. Yet, Father's there, we have to be honest, there are some places and spaces in us that just reject that. If Jesus tells me to forgive my brother, I'm not going to do it. To live in the reality. If Jesus commends me to to care for the poor, I'm going to find a way around that. Father, those are the things that, Lord, you, I think you bring to us and you present to us on a regular basis and we find ways to wiggle out. Lord, would you convict me of those places that I wiggle out of what you have revealed as truth in your scripture, which is authority in my life as I live under you? And would you help us as a church family to truly live out scripture as the reality of the kingdom, not an option. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the wisdom that you give to us that is, is it's on the page. May we live in it and within it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.